Welcome to the sixth episode of MO Forum. Uh, we've been talking about various issues of relevance to our society and where we're going, and none more relevant than the direction that the media is taking uh, with the new technologies, the advent of social media. And we're joined uh, by Chris Yulman uh, today, who I think everyone knows from 7.30 Report fame uh, and he's doing some other work for the ABC at the moment which will become more evident in the coming months but uh, Chris thanks very much for joining us for MO Forum. Thanks Craig thanks for having me and the least I can do is return the favour after all the interviews you've done with us. <laughs> we, we have done a few there's no doubt about that. Chris um, we we're talking off air about your memories uh, that don't extend back so far like you don't recall the 1950s you'd recall the late 80s and the technology that was around then. Can you share that with our viewers? Yeah, I came into journalism in 1989, pretty late in fact. I was 29 years old at the a time. A late bloomer. I was a late, very late bloomer. Some people think that I haven't yet bloomed. But anyway, <laughs> uh, 29 years old and as a copy kid into the Canberra Times. I mean, you think about the, the differences in the technology then. So it was a black and white newspaper. In fact, it was quite a while before the Canberra Times got a colour press. And at the time that I was there, that was one of the big things, the All need right, to move yeah. into a colour press. The expense of getting machinery like that and particularly when you can't run it all the time. The fact that there was an internal computing system called Coyote but any messaging that we had was only within the office. So uh, the uh, the computing system was quite limited. They were just moving to the, the layout system that they were trying to get up and if you went out to the back of the newspaper the old printed industries, uh, printed in Kindred Industries Union was out there and they ruled the shop floor out there. They were the ones who, and it was cut and paste. You know, you would print out a long sheet of the way a story would look. Uh, they would take it out the back and they would literally cut and paste this thing up, then put it onto drums and then the drums would go out and, and they'd run the presses. So very labor intensive industry, yep. both on the journalistic shop floor and behind the scenes. And, and, and almost from the moment that I started, that started to break down to change. Oh, what about the internet? No such thing. Email? No such thing. The emails that we had were little messages that we could send amongst ourselves, but not outside the building. And I remember, because I was a copy kid, which was just mainly a job of moving bits of paper around the office and going and getting people's lunch and dinner, was that out the back there were still telex machines. We were still getting some of our information that way. They'd fire up every now and then. You'd hear the chatter of them and you'd go and pull something off. And then they didn't take long before they moved out, but they were still there. Well, tell me now, was it... Al Gore or Malcolm Turnbull or you who invented the internet? <laughs> I think none of the above. I think to, to his credit, at least Malcolm doesn't claim to have invented it. Oh, perhaps not anywhere but in Australia. All <laughs> oh, right, yes, <laughs> you right. might have introduced the internet to Australia. But again, like to roll forward and we're sort of now in the late 1990s, I've moved out of the newspaper, which by now has a colour press, but again, the number of jobs inside the organisation shrinks. And this is the thing too that happens all the way along as you can start doing layout on a computer screen, as everyone would know, they can do themselves now at home. Yeah. But this is a huge revolution in the way that business is done in papers because it means you can start to get rid of the people who work out the back and cutting up the bits and pieces of paper that you used to send out to them. So those jobs are beginning to collapse, to get smaller and smaller. More of it's been thrown from the from the from the uh, the back print, room to the, the back room, room to the I front guess. room. Yeah. More being done by journalists. Uh, industrial disputation about this the whole way along, as you would imagine. But you wind forward now until the late 1990s, and I'm working at the ABC, and there's one computer where we have this thing called 
the internet, which we can get that's access. That's it. Yeah, that's, that's it. And, and, that's you know, the internet. I remember, I remember doing a story in, and I can't remember the year, but maybe 1992, 1991, on witches in Canberra. Now, the only reason that this becomes of any interest at all, apart from the fact that they were mostly public servants, is that somebody said this to me... Is, we should do a separate MRO for it. Yeah, but there was something, someone said, oh, well, you know, you can find a lot of information on that, on that sort of stuff about Wiccan uh, uh, rights and things on the internet. And I said... What's that? And they said, well, you know, if at, at a university, universities have access to this sort of stuff. And so I thought, well, I'd, I'd, I rang the ANU and, and made an appointment with the person that was, was running this thing, went out to, to have a look at it, was astounded by this. And I said, look, I want to find out about this. You know, how, what does this do? How does it work? The thing I did notice, though, at the time, there seemed to be a whole lot of... I said, then what are all those images that we can see as they come? Oh, there's a lot of porn. Oh, there's right. a lot of porn okay. on the internet. Yeah. Apparently, I was really interested, <laughs> but didn't didn't dare ask. Oh, no. at the time. I didn't look. No. Well, I, I didn't inhale, if you like. <laughs> so, so at that time, when you saw that, you could have invented the Yulman, but someone else came along and invented Google. So. Well, that's right. Well, I, I remember the first search engine that I used at the ABC, which you know, people who who were au fait with these things probably were using things way before that. But the first one that I got to routinely use was a thing called Northern Light. That was a oh, search engine that we use, and mm. look, God knows if it still exists anymore. Yeah. So it was it was a while before Google we heard probably the word bought Google. it. Yeah, they probably <laughs> did assume the whole thing. Yeah. So what implications does this have? I mean, even the time you're talking about, uh, since then there's been an explosion in technologies, um, such that you get upstarts like me doing MO forums and there's blogging all over the place. On Twitter, you mm. can access um, electronic, you know, so it's just 140 characters, but it'll have a link and you can click onto that link and it brings you into a whole new world of someone's interviews like this or their thoughts or um, Melanie Safka singing or whatever. So how is this uh, availability of a multiplicity of platforms affecting the mainstream media? Uh, it's extraordinary. And if you think about it in the past, and you would understand this as an economist, it's a very simple concept, the barrier in the past was the cost. So yep. publishing a newspaper was an extremely expensive thing. The presses that the Camera Times went out to buy, and I don't remember the actual cost, but they scoured the world to find a colour press that, oh, that, yeah. that they could afford mm. that would do the job. Then when they got it, they had to find other things to do with it apart from simply running the newspaper because otherwise it wasn't commercially viable. So printing junk mail. That's actually. right. They had to print mm. stuff all the time yeah. to ensure that they were making they were getting value for money. What we're doing now would have been inconceivable. And the cost of television, and I know from having doing this on a, on a daily basis, even now in, in a commercial area or for the ABC, is really, really expensive. It's very, very slow. But everybody is a publisher now. Everyone yeah. has access to be able to do this. So there's been a huge democratisation, if you like, of the media landscape. I think we are just at the cusp of it, beginning to understand what the possibilities are. The cost, if you like, in the old media terms, is that once upon a time in Australia, we had a settlement where the newspapers could all make money because the, all the eyes went there to read print, or they went on to television. All our three commercial television news stations had a very, very nice settlement with government, so they all actually made money, no matter how, what kind of programming they were really putting on. 
and that paid for the journalism. Yeah, I see. That model is broken. That model is completely broken now. And the problem that everyone has, and I have real sympathy for them in the commercial world, and one of the reasons why we see such a, a strong advocacy out of News Limited to try and limit what the ABC can do, is that as long as people can get this stuff for free, how do you build a commercial enterprise around that? How do you actually pay for the journalism? I think it's a really important question for how journalism progresses in the future. Mm. I would hate to see an environment where we see the disappearance of the commercial news media. I think that they'll get a handle on it soon, but they're all experimenting now. And I think it was the, the former head of News Limited who said, look, in the old world, we knew what a dollar was. In the real world, a dollar was a dollar. Now it's 18 cents. You know, that's about what we can get when we transfer our stuff behind paywalls. It's not enough. Right, um, I see. So um, uh, the paywalls, uh, the print versions of their newspapers, the circulation, as I understand, is declining, perhaps um, in some uh, areas more than others and in some types of newspapers more than others, but nothing seems to be growing. Everything's declining so they're looking at ways of making money by their online versions but you have to go behind the paywall because i understand it that the advertising and there is advertising got a quick little cross to get rid of it isn't as attractive as the advertising in the old print media was that is it isn't effective no the thing the problem you've got too is that again in the old print media one of the first jobs that i had as a as a copy kid is that uh, people, journalists like to believe that people bought the newspapers for the journalism. In fact, what used to pay, particularly for Fairfax, were the classified, classified ads, ads. The, what they call the rivers of gold. The great big, big chunky bits Sydney of Sydney Morning Herald that landed on, you, you could hear it land on the front That's line, right. wake you up at six o'clock in the morning. And it was really, really lucrative. And so the way a newspaper was designed, and, and again, as I say, this was one of my first jobs, it was a very low level job, was the advertising department would send you up the number of ads that they had and what pages they were going to be on. You'd then draw oh, up yeah. the spaces that were left after the advertising. That's where the news goes. And that's where the news went. And that's the way that the model worked. And they're expensive. Now you're talking about, and, and again, I might not have the figures exactly right, but a full page ad in black and white in the Canberra Times in 1989 would have been about $10,000. Well, yeah, yeah. And that's extraordinary sum of money. For Whereas me. now, if you, uh, I'm amazed, uh, to be frank, that there's any classified advertising of motor vehicles mm -hmm. in print media, because you just go on to um, you know the various sites, and there they all are, you know, and you get more information about them on electronic sites. So the the classifieds must be collapsing. They are. The print advertising has suffered catastrophic collapse. Mm -hmm. It is that no longer sustainable. And the best example of that, of course, is. Fairfax and another example too of where they didn't see this coming. There were opportunities for Fairfax along the way to buy up because the, the way that newspapers used to operate and operate quite successfully is to kill off all of their competitors. And Canberra was we'll getting the ACCC on the oh, map. That's right. Well, and Canberra was a good example. I actually tried to set up a newspaper here in competition to the, to the Chronicle, which was the paper the Canberra Times <clears> set up to take care of the local newspaper market uh -huh. and make sure no one else got in. Well, I set yeah. up a, a thing called the Canberra with Eric Beecher was in fact the one who set up the Canberra Weekly and I was his editor. Okay. Well, what happened there was that the Canberra Times uh, through the Chronicle started giving away free ads against the law. It's mm. actually, it's a predatory pricing, but try and get anyone to complain about being 
given a free, free ad. ad. Yeah. So they managed quite successfully to kill us off. What Fairfax should have done and seen coming was that as these different bodies arrived, like the capacity to put classifieds online, to put car sales online, just to buy them up, they didn't. And so these all- To buy up the online. To, yeah, to buy up the facility. online stuff to get into that kind mm. of space. And so Fairfax in particular has been very bad at trying to protect its marketplace. Its classified advertising is gone. It's, it's, uh, it's large banner advertising is gone. Yeah. So now the, the companies are in an absolutely parlous state. And, and can we now move on to, that's a good case study, onto what that means for journalism? Because if the paper has fewer resources, it's going to have fewer journalists. What does that mean for the way journalists behave um, up on the hill with with politicians? I think this is really, it's interesting. Well, what we've, we've seen over time too is you, you saw uh, over a long period of time, because papers have really been in decline since I joined them in 1989. People, it's your fault. It possibly is my fault. I probably could claim some credit for that, but it was the stock market crash around about that time. Of 87. Yeah, I yeah. came in at, at the time when people would talk about the, the days of, and, and you know, talking about the 80s, the thousand dollar lunch, the legendary, mm. you know, mm. the, the expense account where there was money in newspapers, people could spend a lot of time courting their, uh, their contacts and, and yeah. their sources and things. It was a more leisurely age. There was money around. If you wanted to travel to do a story, you could. People could travel to do a story and then not produce one and, mm. and there wouldn't be huge consequences. Well, there's been an absolute collapse in the number of people who are working in journalism. The first effect I think we saw on it was in the state galleries where once upon a time they were reasonably healthy. Now, you know, it's a place where there are very, very few people. Right. The level of scrutiny died there, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, I, and, and I don't, you know, you can overstate the importance of journalism. I'm obviously someone who believes that it's important to a democracy. Sure, I actually do think that the fact that those state galleries collapsed a bit may in part explain some of the problems that we've seen in state politics around the country. One of the things I think, and, and you've seen, absolutely seen the collapse up and down the press gallery corridor on, on the second floor of, yeah, the, of, the, of the Senate, where you walk past that sad Fairfax uh, the age, once you'd, you could walk past there and it was always full, now you can walk past it and it's empty. Yeah. It's, it's similar in the Sydney Morning Herald. There, there has been you know, the absolute number of journalists has fallen. The other thing I think that's happened is as the, the, there's been a more and more desperate attempt to get money in the commercial media, I think there's been a shriller and shriller form of journalism to try and attract those people who are listening to yeah, to, to again, the, to a good point, sites. Chris. I was um, lining up for coffee in the coffee cart on the second floor of the Senate side called the Press Gallery. And uh, one of your colleagues who was quite frustrated about this uh, said, if we don't have the word crisis in the front of the story, mm. we're in trouble. We will have editors saying it, it has to be dramatic. Everything yeah. has to be dramatic to attract attention. And in the period of the previous government, you know, in, we, we would, from time to time, think we're trundling along and then suddenly we're told we're in crisis because a piece of legislation was going to be introduced and it may or may not pass. Well, what's new about that? You know, that's true in the Senate. But they're actually explaining that they're pretty much told to use these dramatic words in the first few 
line, first line really. Yeah, to create the splash, mm. as it's called, you mm. know, the, the thing that's going to lead the front page. And, yeah. and the, uh, the other thing too is that the word exclusive seems to be banded around the way. <laughs> I've seen exclusive, the same exclusive on three or four newspapers. I've seen, yeah, that's right. And the other thing I find amusing is when you've got exclusive on almost every story in the paper, I think it's one of those things, the currency of these things has Get been degraded, degraded by it. Now, look, I think you can, because, it, you know, we're always pining for a better time and things. I think there's been, there have been atrocities in journalism since journalism began. Uh, the, the one that I always mention to people is that, that casts your mind back to the 1890s in the New South Wales Assembly where John Norton was the editor of The Truth, one of the great colourful characters in, uh -huh. in Australia's past. He claims to have invented the word wowser, but he used to use his newspapers to absolutely thrash his opponents. He was also a member of the lower house. Of, there's an idea. Absolutely. Now, see, see, run your own newspaper and a scandal sheet. And... Uh, and Clive Palmer could do that. Well, he could, but look, he'd, he'd struggle to match. He'd struggle to match John Norton because Norton was such a colourful character and a huge drunk, that uh, he, and he was eminently qualified as a journalist and a politician, a Labor man. Well, the there you go. All said by and the done. way, and there's this story about him with one of his his opponents. So he's walking down Pitt Street one day, and this guy who hates him is also uh, an MLA jumps out from behind an awning with a bullwhip and starts to whip John Norton. So Norton takes off down the street with this guy in pursuit, whipping him with the bullwhip. He then jumps behind a lamppost and pulls out a pistol. Oh no! The guy seeing the pistol takes takes off down the takes street flight. and jumps into and jumps into a, you know horse and buggy as as Norton pops off a shot at him. And the next day and, and the next day it was reported in the Sydney Morning Herald as excitement on Pitt Street. Excitement. <laughs> wow. So <laughs> journalism wasn't great so great then. Elements of journalism yeah, yeah. wasn't so great then and and obviously for different reasons. But I do think that we have seen sort of a shriller form of journalism and, and you know, a more partisan, a mm, parting mm. of the ways. Now, there'd be an argument now that, to a certain extent, Fairfax would roll in behind the Labor Party a bit and some would say the ABC, I, of course, would just News that. to me. And, <laughs> and, and that News Limited clearly has decided to cast its lot uh, with the coalition. That's so, not news to me. Yeah, so I think that, you know, and again, there'll be arguments about mm. that, you know, and I'm not going to cast my lot on one side or the other. However, I do think that there is a more partisan tone mm. in what we're seeing now. And and is this, why is that? Why, it, there's no reason in technology for it to be partisan, is there? Or, but or, I think it's a ghettoisation because you're trying to find people who will follow you. Ah, uh, yes, yes. And I've heard like, this, uh, yeah. uh, again, a colleague of yours um, said to me, we used to challenge our readers, now we pander to them. Fox News in the United States, I think, is the classic example where you have possibly the most successful television news station in the United States, which makes no bones about the fact that it is utterly partisan. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's the sort of stuff I find difficult to watch. You yeah. know, I watch it for a brief period of time and then then you, it becomes so repetitious yeah. in, just in terms of the ideology yeah. and so narrow. You know, and again, this is, this is commercial news media. I have no real problem with any of this because in the end people can spend their money in whatever yeah, way in they whatever want way. people can consume whatever they want but there has been uh, i think certainly in the united states a ghettoization in the way that people because there were reactions to fox uh, obviously for more liberal networks decided they'd do they, the same thing so they went their way yep yeah so that the, the more liberal ones in, in 
Um, we're talking in Australian parlance, we think liberal as conservative, but you mean the more progressive ones. That's right. They then went after the progressives as their audience, and Fox went after the conservatives, having gone after the conservatives for their audience. Yeah, look, there is actually even in the United States where it's, it's much more pronounced than here. People talk about the fact that people are now almost deciding to live in the same suburbs that have the same worldviews. Yeah, and, I and I don't know if that's helped to drive what we see as the sort of uber partisanship now that we've mm. seen in the United States, but certainly... You know, Congress seems to have got. It doesn't to the point. seem to have done the U.S. democratic system much good. Does no, it? this, it's got to the point of dysfunction. Is, you know, we've, we've seen debt um, ceiling limits and all of this, and the huge fights about fiscal cliffs and so on. It, is this possibly a direction that Australia might head through? Isn't it a fascinating discussion, Chris? Because technology is driving partisanship to an extent, because you're as a commercial media outlet seeking out your audience and trying to capture it. That's mm. what you're really saying. It's become more narrow casting. Yeah. I think what's, what we've seen now is that what used to be broadcasting, and they are the only available forms, so you consumed them. If you were interested, you had to consume the papers that were available or television stations that were available. They had to, they had to appeal to a broad base yeah. of an audience. You couldn't just try and pander to a particular yeah. worldview. What's happened now is we've seen a complete shattering of the audience across so many different platforms, across so many different styles, that people can ghettoize now. That you can seek out news that actually is a reflection of your, of your own world view, view. Your world view. And let's face it, we all like that. Mm. How many times? And I, I'm I, right. I know, Look, it's in the paper. I know. It's on the telly. How many times have you have you read an article which you thought complete nonsense because I just basically don't agree. With it or with the premise on it, and then lots. you find something lots of, and you find something that that reflects what you think, and yeah. you think that person's that person's a spot on. And then you email it to your friend, saying this yeah. person knows what they're talking yeah, about, right. and that person's yeah. a fool. Yeah. And so uh, it, it's a natural human tendency. It's now being pandered to by the media. I think the this is one of those chicken and egg arguments. But you know, we're now in a cycle where perhaps. It, 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 it's the politics is driving, the media is driving politics. Is it a cycle or a death spiral? Because if you keep chasing your audience and pandering to it, the, the social media will, is going to increase, it's mm. not going to decrease. So you could be, uh, by chasing your audience, you really are shutting out mm. others. Yep. So you're making a pretty big decision here. The other thing that's happening too is that you know while we look you know there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of criticism of the old media and that's fair enough you mm -hmm. know that there, there are a lot of I think there are a lot of cases that we have to answer and that's everybody that's not just the commercial media that's the ABC as well. Uh, Lindsay Tanner makes very powerful arguments on this. I don't entirely agree with Lindsay because in the end I feel that you get to the stage where you say what so the political parties the opposition the government are victims of this and can do nothing about mm -hmm. it. So I think you know we have basically formed a pact, if you like, where we're all responsible for the state of politics and the media as it is now. So I think there's shared responsibility. But the other thing that's happened is that the rise of social media, while tremendous on many fronts, has allowed people, um, and the only way I can describe it, it's like in once upon a time, you know, the people who had a real big beef would go into a toilet, lock the door and write rude words on the wall. We now have that online, Com completely yeah. anonymous ability yeah, yeah. to be able to enter into the public fray, and graffiti. Can, yeah, yeah, basically, and the worst kind mm. of graffiti mm. and stuff that you could never publish. No. Like there were limits on us. You know, people talk about a free press. We were always very limited by what defamation yeah. allowed. Yeah. 
so there are whole lots of limits on what you could and couldn't say about someone. There had to be some level of testing of a proof, uh, of, a, of a truth, if you like, mm. that you actually had to offer someone a right, a, a reply. reply. Yeah. Uh, look at look at the sewer that some of this social media is. And, and this is a law here, Chris, that if they, let's say um, a politician's aggrieved, um, it's false, it's malicious and damaging, could that politician nevertheless chase that uh, originator mm. down, that person down, if that person could be identified? I think there have to be some consequences. Mm. There has to be some consequence for saying something that is utterly untrue and which does damage. And certainly the retweeting or the... Uh, I mean, there, you'll get someone who's anonymous, and my understanding is Twitter don't see the funny side of telling people who that is, mm. even though they know mm. or they can know. But I suppose if it's then retweeted and retweeted by people who are identified, that, that could be a problem. That's a problem. And the other thing that certainly happened, and we saw this in, in, uh, in federal politics, where stuff that essentially originates and gathers steam online mm. then eventually starts Major to migrate its way yeah, into yeah, the mainstream right. media. Now, leaving aside the rights or the wrongs of what happened with the AWU in Victoria all those years ago, yeah. the huge campaign of it, although there was one or two people in the mainstream media, the huge campaign of it was going on online and the worst of it was going on. That Mike online. Smith. Uh, uh, Mike Smith started on, don't forget though, on, on uh, Fairfax Radio, Radio but, but actually lost his job yes, he did. over the way that this story yeah. was covered. Again, I'm not talking about the rights and wrongs of it, yeah. but there were consequences in the old media world from management yes. for what was seen as stepping over a over boundary. A Wherever you draw mm. that line, mm. Mike Smith would no doubt argue that, you know, that he was actually doing something that he sees as a public service. Again, I'm not getting into that. However, then a lot of what went on, and particularly the worst of what went on, uh, say Larry Pink Pickering's yeah. excesses, for example, you know, who seems to be a, a tragic human being because mm. a once great political cartoonist mm. worked at the Canberra Times, mm. but, you know, now has, has, has become clearly an online crank of the worst possible type. Yeah. Um, that sort of stuff started to find its way, if you like, to migrate across. Not the, not the ultimate extreme of it, but, yeah. but some of the sentiment of it. Mm -hmm. um, another impact, it seems to me, is that um, because the money is you know, getting uh, in shorter supply, I do recall the 1980s. I never went to one of those $1,000 lunches. No one ever invited me, even no, I though I was an economic advisor to Bob Hawke. <laughs> well. Maybe they thought I'd tell Bob. But, um, or Peter Walsh, which would have been a lot worse. Cause Peter as long as you didn't pay, <laughs> he would have been all right with but that. But with, with um, less money, it's difficult to employ specialists. And my experience, just quickly, was um, when we are in government, I'd go in for early morning interviews. And whatever the issue was, the second question after a very short discussion of the interview was, Craig, what are the politics of this? Mm. You couldn't get into the substance of the policy issue. It would immediately go to politics. Now, that could be in part because it was minority government and so it was especially sharp. Mm. But I wonder too whether we'll, we lost so many specialist types of journalists, your social policy, especially education, your health uh, writers and so on, so that you're left with a handful of journalists in a network or on a newspaper who are just scrambling all day and scrambling with the online content coming through, they don't get the opportunity mm. to read 
and to drill down into these issues. Well, I'll give you some examples of, of, of the pressures that are now put on journalists, which are simply impossible. So, for example, you know, we have a, a lock-up at federal budget time, which yes. is great. It actually allows you to sit down with the documentation. Yeah. I mean, leaving aside that, you know, probably not necessary anymore and, and people might see it as a way of the government locking them up and being able to sort of proselytise to journalists. I really appreciate it from the point of view is that no one is going to ask me to talk about this document until I've had a chance to, to read, read it. it. Yeah. But you, you think of some of the big things that happened, for example, when climate change policy was the first time around. And you've got these massive documents now that uh, probably a little out of time in the sense that Sky was going there, but 24 wasn't. I'm just trying to think there was another one where basically you were handed this document and the press release. A camera was waiting for you out the front. Yeah. As you walked towards the camera, you were reading the press release. Yeah. Then you stood up in front of the camera, a camera and you maybe had another two or three minutes to finish the press release and flick through the front pages before someone said, what's that all about? And then the next question is, and what does it mean? Yes. And why nobody? Do, why that pressure? Because there are other networks lined up because and they were going to do the same thing. Exactly. Were... So, you, you know, you've got, you've got say, Sky and, and 24 now in competition yeah. to get so out So you don't as want, as you from can. ABC 24 point of view, Sky to be out in front and then ABC viewers are saying, well, where's, where's our journalist telling us what's in this? Now, of course, not every instance is like that, no. but there are lots of instances like that now with, where, where huge, important documents, mm. court judgments, yeah. The things that are handed yeah. down and once upon a time there was more time to reflect than to write and it was always the deadlines were always tight it was yeah. never that you had a huge yeah. amount of time if you're working in radio for example those sorts of things were always there so you know it's always been those sorts of difficulties but there is real pressure on now uh, and and usually people without much support at all because everything's been paired back to you know it can just be one camera with a link yeah. with a journalist there's no one there helping you to produce it talk to you about what it might, might be involved. And so people are asked to make huge jaw, calls, instant snap judgment calls on, on very important pieces the of other, policy. The um, other, before we get to the ABC, I'd like to have mm -hmm. a quick chat about the ABC and its role in, in mm -hmm. all of this, but um, opinion polls. Mm -hmm. uh, when we were not going to those $1,000 lunches back in the 1980s. There were only two opinion polls. There was a news poll and I think it was a McNair-Anderson poll. Um, there might have been one other. Um, and they came out once a month in the case of the Fairfax poll and once a fortnight in the case of news poll. That's it. Hmm. What I was confronted with doing a lot of the early morning shift is an opinion poll every day. Hmm. And the leaked polling as well too. So it's not all um, public published opinion polling would be leaked by within the Labor Party or less so must, I must say within the Liberal Party to seek to damage the Labor Party. The damage was done internally yeah. you know, by people in the Labor Party. But again, um, I don't know whether the audience is fascinated with opinion polls. But there's no doubt in my mind that journalists were because I could go for a 10 minute interview and at the end of it saying, well, we didn't actually get to any policy at all. Yeah, I know. What, what, what's the attraction of opinion polling from a, a media 
outlet's point of view? I think two things is that, you know, like it's like fortune telling is that in the end that, that you know, people always want to get to an outcome before it actually happens. <laughs> now, it's part of human nature. Yeah. This is like what's actually going on. You know, that it's, a, it's a, one of those things that is kind of a measurement of, of some kind of measurement of where we might be at in the political cycle. There's that. <clears throat> I also felt, though, too, that opinion polling was was used basically to drive a particular point of view on occasions. Yeah. You know, that, that yeah. in the end, as you know, it's questions that you ask matter as much. That's right. You know, if you're always going to put into an opinion poll uh, preferred prime minister plus this other person that's been hanging around for ages, yeah. well, they'd be a better prime minister than the one that we've got now. Yeah. They're in the same political No party. names. And no, no names, no pactoral. But then you are setting up a contest. Yeah. And then out of that become you get a, a story um, that kicks on from it. I wonder the last question on this. Maybe they're becoming less expensive too the polls because there's a lot of automated polls yeah. which I'm told are not too bad. Yeah. Um, the Reachtel poll is not too bad. I don't know how much they cost, but uh, but the news poll and the and oh sorry, the, due respect to Morgan. The Morgan poll was big during the nineteen eighties. I yeah. apologise, yeah. um, but uh, they were big exercises, big yeah. expensive exercises. But if the media doesn't have the money, how come there are so many polls? And the polls, the technology of polling must have um, made it a lot cheaper. Well, you're too. right. The, the automated polls have come in, and they are of variable quality, as mm. I understand. Some are shockers, but yeah. others are. Quite there are good. some really bad ones, and that was proven in the last election campaign. Mm. Some of those things are out by miles, yeah. you know. And then there was the the attempt to try and gauge what was going on in marginal seats. And again, you know, I can think of one or two of those which were just dreadful. In yeah, sense. yeah, they were so far out it wasn't funny. So yeah, it's some of that technology has become cheaper, and of course, you know, it's there are uh, ways that you can do things now that couldn't be done in the mm. past, like like this. this. But it is uh, frightening, then. I think because what we're really talking about here is a superficiality mm. and a partisanship, um, and I, I'm not necessarily just talking about coalition versus Labor, but as you say, uh, media outlets diving down a particular, I think you called it the ghettoisation, but it means that there isn't the debate about the national interest and where Australia should be headed. It's more just a knockdown, drag out brawl. Yeah, I think the difficult thing for the political class and, you know, those who work in professional journalism now too is, and, you know, I think everyone does take, most people are decent and do take mm. these things seriously, is that how do you communicate with a, a complex message to a mass audience now? Yeah. How do you do it? How do you maintain it? I don't think it's impossible. I think that you know, smart people no doubt are thinking about these things at the moment. And again, like it or dislike it, clearly the Abbott government has watched very closely what happened in the last three to six years with, with Labor Party and the media and made a deliberate decision to try and slow the cycle down yeah. and take control of it again. Now, I think there are two things in that. One, I don't think there's any problem with the government trying to do that at all. It becomes a problem if it's just a mechanism to not tell anyone. To hide, yeah, to, to hide, hide genuine and news. And I feel yeah. that there's a there's a dual yeah, thing see. going on at the mm. moment. So again, without sort of prosecuting that all the way, I, I think that. But the intention to try and, yeah. and measure your own pace is a perfectly legitimate well. I think thing for so too. To in that, Labor certainly used to lament the twenty four hour yeah. news cycle and. Um, it's easier said than done as to a remedy to it. But, I, I think a huge problem. For, yeah, trying something. Yeah. I think a huge problem for the government 
for the former Labor government from the word go, a, a huge tactical mistake was to continue to try and chase the media cycle. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, this is stuff that will be debated forever. But I remember being told by one of the then Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd's media minders, well, it's not a 24-hour cycle now, it's a 15-minute cycle and you need to be up to pace mm. with it. And I thought then that's nonsense. Mm. It actually isn't that fast. And that a, a sensible government would not try to feed the beast. Yeah. That you would say, you know, this is what we're talking about. We're going to talk about this for a week. You can interview us as many times as you like. We'd love that. Yeah. But this is our topic. Yeah. You know, you might changing. have an agenda. Yeah. But this is you need yeah. to understand this, no, and this point. is what we're going to talk good about. Point. The role of the ABC in all of this. Mm. Um, you alluded earlier to uh, the commercial networks um, and uh, even other platforms being pretty anxious about the ABC because the ABC um, doesn't have to make a profit. Mm. Um, but I'm a big supporter of the ABC, and yeah. it would be bad if uh, if this were this kind of unlevel playing field was seen to be seen as a way of or a justification yeah. for taking a lot of money out of the ABC. Look, I'm obviously a huge supporter of the ABC because they employ me, and I think that it is a it is absolutely a national treasure. However, I understand, and if I was running a commercial media organisation, I I would feeling exactly the same way is that when the ABC uh, now has a huge online presence that is a direct competitor to those people who are trying to make a buck out of it and spending their own money on it particularly when and it became quite acute when we set up the drum which is an online opinion site yes again that used to be the province of the commercial world where we now intruded into that space as well 24, some of them would argue, mm. would, would, would be a similar thing because there was already Sky. However, I would say this, my view, and I helped to set up 24, the political end of it was that as a national broadcaster, it, you know, it was a difficult decision because it's quite expensive and it had to come from within existing budgets. It did squeeze other things, so other choices had to be made. Uh, that the, the national broadcaster had to be in that space. We didn't really have mm. a choice. No, that we actually no. had to set up that organisation. So... But I do understand the commercial pressures. I actually have some sympathy for them. I think it would be an utter tragedy if they all declined. You know, I think we need a strong commercial media. And don't forget, people talk about commercial media atrocities. Some of the best publications in the world, like The Economist, commercial, commercial media. Yeah. Some of the things that we hold up of being the greatest standard bearers of journalism in the world have been the commercial media, the New York mm. Times, yeah, Washington yeah. Post, you know. But the ABC is, um, just listening to what you say, it is an electronic um, device, mm. sends out signals. But the logic of what you're saying is that it's competing directly with newspapers. Everything's converg convergence. You had an inquiry on it. Yeah. yeah. So in, now we've all, we've all landed in the same space. We're so all publishers, we're all the, broadcasters. The Daily Telegraph could be upset at the ABC, the Australian could be um, the Sydney Morning Herald because your online, the ABC online presence, could be knocking out either its online presence or its newspapers, its physical newspaper, or both. Go to the newspaper websites now and our website, they're indistinguishable. Essentially, they'll have, we'll have stories on them, which are print stories, if you like, which are the text versions. And you'll click on stories where we've got our video versions of what's been done. You go to the commercial newspaper sites now, they've got the same thing. Mm. And you know, you go to the Australian and they'll have their online analysts uh, who are talking to cameras. So everybody, so we've seen now the convergence 
of all media to a point where online it's indistinguishable. Yeah. We are all doing the same and, stuff. And when I said I'm a supporter of the ABC, um, my own view, and you might disagree with this, is that the ABC was very critical of the previous government, um, gave some credit where credit was due. It's not so much about, oh, um, the ABC is good because it's pro-progressive, pro and some programs might be a bit more that way than others, but what the ABC offered is the capacity to have a sustained conversation, mm. you know, on say ABC 24, where you could go in and talk about climate change and talk about it for eight or 10 minutes. Um, Q&A, for example, you can talk about subjects for nearly an hour. Um, the 7.30 report, I've had some celebrated debates with Lee Sales, mm. you know, where I was trying to get back onto policy and mm. Lee was on leadership. But at least there is an avenue there, that was my experience, whereas with some of the commercial outlets, first question, what about the opinion poll? Um, second, you know, what about leadership? What about crisis? It's just sort of a, uh, I thought it stifled what the people, I think, want, and that is to be informed about yeah. what's going on in I think Sky does a great job too. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that Sky, you know, in, in its political bureau in Canberra, that you have very long discussions with that on that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, and I, I do quite a bit of Sky work, and yeah. you know, Kieran and David and all those guys are good. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but but yeah, look, I, I I think absolutely. I think that's the ABC's role. The ABC's role is to try and have that space in public policy where these things are discussed. You know, there is a a strong line of commentary that you know that the abc is a reflection of a left-leaning inner city suburban uh elite if you like uh, inner city elite i should say well you know I, I guess you know you can make those arguments in the end uh, people see what they want to see i think on a lot of this mm. this kind of stuff i do know and uh, and you would certainly know that i i certainly uh, thought that we were we were actually quite hard on the last Labor administration. Mm. I would yeah. argue because there was plenty of ammunition to work with, but I do know that there, there are people who are in, in, who were in very senior positions who thought they were very hard done by in the Labor Party. Yeah. So I don't think that the, the ABC was doing Labor any favors yeah. necessarily, yeah. but I do think that you know that <clears throat> the organization always has the capacity to allow people to talk on it, and I don't think that they get shouted down on it too often. It does happen on occasions. Well, let's see what happens to Auntie, to our ABC. <laughs> I don't know if it's eight cents a day, but uh, probably taxpayers are contributing somewhat more, but it, it does have an important role in this ever-changing media world uh, with the rise of social media. Not all social media um, exercises are going to work either. Mm -hmm. um, so, but the cost of failure there is much lower, I think, because it's just people Lucky like for us you. having a crack at MO <laughs> Forum. So, uh, look, Chris, it's just been a, a great pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on. I've learned a lot, and I hope that um, everyone who's been watching episode six of MO Forum has also learned. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Craig.